guess that, those were the applause for making the journey here from Israel, right? <laughs> thank you very much. Good morning. And thank you, Pastor, for opening this house. Uh, it's not a simple matter to have uh, a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, an Orthodox rabbi, uh, speak to a church on a Sunday morning. I appreciate the uh, being willing to step into that relationship, and it, it, it means a lot. And I think it's really... Uh, it speaks to where, where we're going in the future. We're about to engage in a discussion of eschatology, of end times. I'm not going to be talking about signs and blood moons and all that stuff you hear about people talking about end times and doomsday prophecies. I'm not going to be doing that like the pastor said. And the truth is, for a lot of people, Jews and Christians, a lot of Bible-believing people, we kind of are made uncomfortable at times by these discussions. Anyone know what I'm talking about? People start talking about end times and you're like, eh, you roll your eyes or you just don't, you don't want to go there. Do you know what I mean? There's probably other people here who are like, no, I love it. Um, but let me just say something about eschatology. Obviously, the Bible has eschatology in it discussions of the future. The Bible is not only a book about the past, it's also a book about the future. I think the importance of thinking and listening to discussions, you know, to the topic of eschatology, of exploring it, is that eschatology, the end times, that's, eschatology is a fancy word for the study of the, the end times, right? The end uh, the redemption, the kingdom of God in the future, whatever you want to call it, where we're all headed. The importance of it is that it defines what game we're playing. Meaning, you know, imagine, imagine I buy a new board game. I sit down, sit down with my kids, and we're going to play this new game. And we start reading the rules. The most important thing we need to understand is how do you win? Right? How do you score a point? How do you win? What is the finish line? Because then everything that I do throughout the rest of the game is going to have in mind getting to that victory. So I don't think, I don't view eschatology as important because ooh, am I going to live to see it? Or, ooh, there's a sign that this is happening or that is happening. That's not why I see it as important. I see it as important because if we understand where we are in that game and we understand what the goal is, what the finish line looks like, it informs how we behave every day. Because everything that we're doing is pushing ourselves towards that point. Does that make sense? Now, I us usually when I speak, I don't read from notes. Um, I know that uh, Steve and Regina have been going through the internet looking for lectures of mine and, uh, and watching them, and I tend to walk around and use my hands, and I don't usually speak from notes. But for this talk, because it's pretty complicated, don't worry, don't worry. I'll walk you through it. Everything will make sense. Just pay attention. Um, I am going to be working from notes. I hope that's okay. So you'll, 
you'll forgive me, but I'll, I'll make every effort uh, to not sound like I'm reading, and I'll keep, I'll, I'll keep you awake, don't worry. If you need to stay awake, you need to get up and walk around, feel free to do so. So any discussion of the end times, of the end of days, begins really with the beginning of days. The beginning of creation itself. Because the story of the end times is not a separate story in and of itself. It's not just an event that we're waiting around for. It's the culmination of the entire sweep of history, the entire story of time, of humanity. It's the final chapter in God's plan for the world. Just think about the Bible. The Bible starts its story with the creation, with, with the creation of the world, the very beginning of everything, and moves us through all the generations of that time and, and then moves into telling us about what's going to come later. So the end times is not a separate event. And before we go any further, we should also note that the greatest and most obvious evidence that we are living, again, I don't want to get all spooky, but the, fact, but the evidence that we are living in somewhere, maybe it's the beginning, maybe it's the middle of, that, of those final chapters, is the country in which I make my home, the state of Israel. The mass return of the Jewish people, the people of Israel, to the land of Israel, the establishment of Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel, stands as the greatest proof of the truth of biblical prophecy on this earth, probably that the earth has ever known. In Deuteronomy 29, verse 22, It, this is, well, let me take a step back. The final chapters of Deuteronomy is the end of Moses' life. The whole book of Deuteronomy is speeches that Moses gave, a series of speeches that he gave during the last five weeks of his life. That's Deuteronomy. At the end of Deuteronomy, chapters 28, 29, 30, those chapters, Moses lays out a vision for the future. Deuteronomy 28, he tells the people of Israel that there will come a time where they will sin, they will turn their backs on God, and as a result, they will suffer horrible sufferings and punishments. Those punishments in Deuteronomy 28 culminate in an exile, being scattered all over the earth. And in Deuteronomy 29, continuing that conversation, speaking about people who come to the land and see it desolate, Moses describes the last generation. Now, in Deuteron if you have a Bible in front of you and you look up Deuteronomy 29, verse 22, it will not say the last generation in your English translations because the English translations do not accurately translate the words of that verse. I think, English, I think translators of the Bible like to keep their translations sounding kind of like normal. So they don't want to say the last generation. And by the way, the Hebrew word for generation, dor, really means era. So it doesn't mean like our narrow definition of generation, like parent to child or 20 years. And it refers to the last generation. The Hebrew is hador ha'acharon. I don't know how many people here know Hebrew, but you'll have to trust me. The word acharon has no other meaning. It means last. 
talks about it going on, the exile's going to go on for a long time. I don't know how long the last generation is, how far in the future that is, <coughs> but we're talking about an exile that would go on for a very long time. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses describes the return. Could we have the first slide, please? He says, Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors. You following along with me up here? Okay. So if we're looking for evidence that we are in fact living in the era of the end, we don't need to look any further than the modern state of Israel. You see, I just read you a prophecy from Deuteronomy written over 3,300 years ago. It describes the people of Israel who Moses earlier in the book of Deuteronomy, back in chapter 7, he told the people of Israel that, we will, that the people of Israel will be the smallest nation on earth. Now, most people don't know how many Jews there are because we make a lot of noise. So people think there's more of us than there actually are. The Jewish people today constitute less than half of 1% of the earth's population. I'll let that sink in for a moment. Less than half of 1%. Which means if you do anything with statistics, it means we don't exist. We don't make it into the pie chart. So Moses tells them you're going to be a tiny little people. And then he tells us that we're going to be scattered. We're not going to go into exile altogether to one place. Where it might be easier to hold on to our identity. No, 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 no. We're going to be scattered all over the earth tiny in number, and it's going to go on for a very long time. And then, somehow, we're going to get gathered in, which is unprecedented. That does not happen in history. When Moses said this 3,300 3, years ago, he was describing something absurd. Many, many nations in the ancient world got sent into exile. It was normal. Empires would come in, they'd conquer a people, they'd, they'd uh, chop off the heads of all the uh, fighting men, and then they would send everyone else into exile. And that's why those ancient peoples don't really exist anymore today. They got mixed up. They got mixed together in these empires and they lost their identities. So when Moses tells the people of Israel, you're going to get scattered into exile for a very long time. But then you're going to all come back. He's describing some... At the time that he's saying it, if you were there 3,300 years ago listening to him, you'd be like, who's coming back? But we did. So the, the prophecy that I just read to you in Deuteronomy 30, that after being scattered for many, many generations, we will come back, and not only will we come back, we will regain possession of our land and become more numerous and more prosperous than our ancestors. That is a prophecy that when you read your Bible and you read Deuteronomy 30, it is written in the future tense. And today, I want to... Today, in 2022, every word of that prophecy that I read to you is, is, is fact. It is, it's no longer future tense. There are more Jews in the land of Israel today than ever before. We've taken possession of the land. We are the governing, the Jewish state. 
And we are more prosperous in the land than ever before. Israel's a flourishing economy. Just let that sink in. We live in a time where a, where a, a future tense, end times prophecy in the book of Deuteronomy is just a reality. Our great-grandparents and those came before us hundreds of, you know, until 1948, until very recently, even 1948, we weren't so prosperous yet. Until the last few decades, these, this prophecy was not yet fulfilled. It's fulfilled now. So, again, if you're looking for evidence that we're living in the end of days, we have it. Now, for those of you who have visited Israel, could I see a show of hands who's visited Israel? Oh, very nice. A bunch of hands went up. I tell you, I go into some churches where it's like one hand goes up. So those of you who haven't, put it on your bucket list. Those of you who have, tell the people who haven't how it changes you. As I hope and I, I'm confident that it has. So for those of you who have visited Israel, you know exactly what I mean. Seeing the streets of Jerusalem filled with the people of Israel, it causes any Bible-believing person to take a step back and consider the full scope of history and to simply marvel at the miraculous unfolding of God's plan. But of course it wasn't always this way. I'd like to take you on a journey back to what may be the lowest point in the history of the Jewish people. And we've had a lot of low points. Well, at least this is the lowest point at least in the in the if we're talking about our presence in the land of Israel. Like today, we are more numerous and more prosperous in our land than ever before. So this is kind of a high point. What's the low point in our presence in the land of Israel? So the year I'll take you to is 1267. There was a great rabbi from Spain, Rabbi Moses Nachmanides, which is a fancy Latin way of saying son of Nachman. Rabbi Moses, the son of Nachman, he was the greatest rabbi of his time. He was both the greatest scholar of Jewish law, as well as the greatest mystic rabbi. He was also a medical doctor. He, had a, he actually had a, the, one of the first medical schools in the world in Spain. He was a great man. He was the leader of the Jewish community in Spain in the 13th century. He left Spain in 1267 to travel to the land of Israel to live out his remaining years there, right? So he bought a ticket on United. Hope, hope that he got a window seat, right? Complained if his meal didn't come. No. It wasn't so simple to travel to the land of Israel in the, in the 13th century. He had been famously, he was forced to engage in a public defense of Judaism in the court of the Spanish king to debate uh, a Christian leader. And he was granted permission by the king to speak freely without fear of being arrested for heresy. Rabbi Moses Nachmanides, he proclaimed what still stands today as, a, as the greatest defense of Judaism. It was an amazing debate. But despite the royal dispensation allowing him to speak his mind freely, the debate uh, left him with no real choice. He had to get out of Dodge. So not long after this debate, he decided to fulfill his life's dream. And at the age of 73, he embarked on this long and dangerous journey to the Holy Land. Now, let's understand what the Holy Land looked like in the 13th century. 
The 13th century was a very tough time period for the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem has been conquered and destroyed literally dozens of times in its history. But the 13th century might be the worst century in Jerusalem's history, other than the destruction of the temple. In 1228, the Sixth Crusade swept through, slaughtering many in its midst, uh, in, its, in, its way, in, its, uh, in its way. Then the Muslims came back and they raised the city in, in uh, 1244. And then the Seventh Crusade came through in 1250. And then the Mongol and Tatari invasion in 1260. These all involved massacres and destruction. The city of Jerusalem was rubble. It was a war zone. And it just changed hands depending on who was passing through every decade and a half or so. This is the Jerusalem that Rabbi Moses Nachmanides arrives in in 1267. There were no walls around the city. If you go to Jerusalem today and you see those walls, those walls were built by the Ottoman Turks in the 16th century. The ancient walls had already been destroyed and so Jerusalem is exposed. It's being destroyed by marauding armies and Rabbi Moses Nachmanides show up. He shows up there. And upon arrival, he wrote a letter to his son back in Spain. And we have this letter today. We have the text of this letter that he wrote to his son. And I'd like to read it to you. I translated it. And here's his letter to his son. May God bless you, my son Nachman. He named his son after his father, I guess. And may you see the good of Jerusalem. May you see children of your children, and may your table be like the table of Abraham, our father. If you've lost concentration, or the person next to you has fallen asleep, this is a good time to kind of pull yourself back in. Don't worry, you didn't miss much. This is really interesting, okay? I'll just, it's easy for me to stay concentrating. I'm standing up and I'm talking. I understand it's difficult. So, listen carefully. I, I, I know how it is. In the holy city, listen to what he writes to his son. In the holy city of Jerusalem, I write this letter to you. For with praise and thanks to the rock of my salvation, I merited to arrive peacefully on the ninth day of the month of Elul. Elul usually happens around August in the Hebrew calendar. And I stayed in her, in Jerusalem, in peace until the day after Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which is usually sometime in mid-September. After which I am now planning to travel to Hebron, the city of the graves of our forefathers, to pray there and to dig a burial site for myself there with God's help. He did not accomplish that. He's not buried in Hebron. What can I tell you regarding the land? For there is much neglect and the desolation is great. The general rule is as follows. That which is holier is more destroyed Jerusalem is more destroyed than anything else. And Judea is more destroyed than the Galilee. Can I have the next slide? See a piece of this letter up on the screen. But Jerusalem, with all of her destruction, is very good. It has approximately 2,000 inhabitants. Around 300 of them are Christians, refugees from the Sultan's sword. Keep going with the slides. Follow me along here. There are no Jews in her, for ever since the Tatars invaded, they fled from there, and others were killed by their sword. Except for two brothers, 
dyers, that's with a Y, they uh, dyed uh, wool. They purchased the dyes from the magistrate. These two are joined by up to a quorum of ten for communal worship in their home on the Sabbaths. Behold, I encouraged them, and we found a destroyed house built with marble pillars with a beautiful dome. And we took it as a synagogue, for the city is abandoned. Anyone who wants to acquire a destroyed building may do so. They volunteered to repair the house. They took the initiative and sent to Shechem to bring Torah scrolls from there that were, that were from Jerusalem, but were taken there when the Tatars invaded. Behold, they've established a synagogue, and there they will pray. For many people come to Jerusalem regularly, men and women from Damascus and Aleppo and all of the regions of the land, to see the temple site and to cry over it. He who granted me to see Jerusalem in its state of destruction will grant us to see it rebuilt and established when the glorious presence of God returns to it. May you, my son, and your siblings, and the entire family, all of you, merit seeing the good of Jerusalem and the comfort of Zion. Your worried and rejoicing father, Moses Nachmanides. And then he has a P.S. Send my greetings to Rabbi Moses, son of Solomon, your mother's brother. His brother-in-law, right? I hereby tell him that I went up to the Mount of Olives, which is opposite the Temple Mount and adjacent to it. Only the Valley of Jehoshaphat separates them. And there, opposite the Holy Temple, I read his verses with much weeping as he prophesied. May he who caused his name to dwell in the holy temple increase and expand your peace with the peace of your entire honored and holy community forever and for eternity. Amen. That's the end of the letter. Amazing. Think about that. There were two Jews in Jerusalem. No, no synagogue in Jerusalem. And this is all from the Tatar invasion. So... I know you didn't memorize all the dates I told you, but the Tatar invasion was in 1260. Just a few years before he arrived there. But seven years. So there's this period of time for less than a decade that there's no synagogue, no Torah scroll in Jerusalem. And there's two Jews there. That's how things looked in 1267. And now look what we have today. We'll get back to this low point in a moment. A few years earlier, this very same rabbi, Rabbi Moses Nachmanides, wrote a book called The Book of Redemption, explaining the Jewish view of eschatology, about the coming of the Messiah, and the end, of the end times. And he wrote it because he felt that many Jews were on the verge of giving up hope. The suffering of the exile was so difficult and so never-ending. They had already been in exile the temple had already been destroyed for over 1,200 years, or approximately 1,200 years at that point. And Jews were like, you know, how many times can you say, next year in Jerusalem, we're going to rebuild the temple one day? 1,200 years is a long time. So he wrote this book to encourage people. Towards the end of the book, Nachmanides mentions that the sages of the Talmud, the, rabbi, the rabbinic sages from the end of the Second Temple period, 
discouraged too much talk about eschatology, about the, about the end times. They, didn't, they weren't comfortable with it. The rabbis in the Talmud said that they didn't want people to, trying to figure out when the end would come. They had fear that such talk would, chew, would cause people to lose faith, which it often does. It's the irony of it. When calculations and predictions are made, and then people build up anticipation, and it doesn't happen at that predicted time, and there are examples of this in the Christian world, people write books and say, oh, the, you know, the end is going to come at a certain date, and then the date passes, and people sort of scratch their heads, and they move on. And some people lose faith. So such crises of faith were even more painful and dangerous when the suffering of the exile was so never-ending. And there were many Jewish examples of this, of people who came along and they made predictions, the predictions didn't come true, and then people lost faith. So the rabbis basically said, this is taboo, it's off-limits, don't do this, it's not healthy. Don't speak about the end times. But here's Rabbi Moses Nachmanides writing a whole book about it. So he mentions this taboo of the sages of the Talmud against speaking about the end of days. And he writes in the middle of the 13th century that we don't have to worry about this taboo any longer. We can talk about it now. And he wrote that there's no longer any reason to avoid the topic because there's no more hope to be lost. At this point, such discussions could only give people hope, not take it away. After all, Nachmanides writes, and I quote him now, we are already living in the era of the end times. Okay. <laughs> I'm happy that you're laughing. Now think about that. This is the year, this is somewhere in the middle of this, we don't have an exact date on this book, but it's before his travel to Israel. So somewhere in the, I don't know, 1250 or so, some, somewhere in the middle of the 13th century, he says that we're already living in the era of the end of days. There are two Jews in Jerusalem. There's no synagogue in Jerusalem. What on earth is this rabbi talking about? So my friends, Rabbi Moses Nachmanides was not crazy. Understanding what this great scholar meant almost 800 years ago will open us up to an understanding of the miraculous events of our times as well. Got your thinking caps on? I see Steve's taking notes. If you want to take out a pen and paper, here we go. Stay with me. Could I have the next slide, please? Okay. Can everyone see that slide? Psalm 90, verse 4 states, A thousand years in your eyes speaking about God, a thousand years in your eyes are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. Sounds like nice poetry. Based on this verse, a thousand years in God's eyes are like a day. Based on this verse, our sages, the Jewish sages in ancient times, thousands of years ago, understood the creation story in Genesis the six days of creation, as not only the story of how the world was created in the past, six days that culminate in a pure, perfect human being living in a perfect world, that's the creation story, but based on this verse in Psalms, 
they also understood that the story of creation is also foreshadowing the entire story of history. Let's see the next slide. This is a line from the Talmud based on this verse in, in Psalms. It was taught by Elijah. The world is 6,000 years. That's the history of the world. 6,000 years. It begins with chaos and it ends with the day of the Messiah. So, a thousand years in your eyes are like a day. Right? That's the verse in Psalms. So just as the six days of creation were a development from chaos and nothingness, that's the opening of Genesis, right? Everything was unformed and chaos. And it develops into the perfect human being in a pure, perfect world at the end of the creation story. So too, the six godly days, the 6,000 years of history are the grand story of the ultimate creation. The development of this world from ancient pagan chaos to faithful perfection, producing once again a pure world with man in the image of God, leading up to the glorious end. What comes after the six days of creation is the seventh day, the Sabbath, the Sabbath of history, the Lord's day. That's the era after the 6,000 years. Got it? And by the way, I'm a rabbi, so I shouldn't be speaking about Christian theology, but now you might understand where the Jewish writers of the Christian Bible and the Jewish, uh, you know, the people who created Christianity, who started Christianity, were Jews, where they, they, they knew this teaching. Now you might understand where they get the whole thousand-year reign from. Makes, this is, because they're coming from the same schools. You understand this? You okay? You with me? All right. So at the end of the Jewish morning prayer service, let me, we're going to unpack this now. What does this mean? History is 6,000 years. Each 1,000 years is a day for God. So the creation story in the Bible, let's just sum up what we've said so far. The creation story in the Bible is a story of creation. That's true. But it also, you know, God can say multiple things at the same time. And the Bible has all kinds of hints and codes embedded within it that foreshadow other things. There's other messages embedded in the words of the Bible. So the six days of creation are also speaking about the entire history of the world. Six, God's six days, his 6,000 years, ending with a Sabbath, the kingdom of the Lord. Now, every day, every day of the week, you know, Jews pray three times a day. We're very liturgical. We have our set prayers every morning. I said my prayers this morning. At the end of our, of our uh, daily liturgy, each day of the week has a psalm that we recite. That is for that day. So there's a psalm for Sunday. There's a psalm for Monday, etc. These psalms were the psalms that were sung by the Levites in the temple as part of the day's temple service back in temple times. The Levites would sing psalms. And we still have record of which psalms they sung for different days. And, and festival days have special psalms that are said for them. So each day's psalm is introduced with a line that states what day of the week it is. 
And the, the words Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, obviously these are not, these are pagan words. You know that, right? They refer to various gods and things. So in, in, uh, in the Jewish tradition, in Hebrew, we simply refer to the days in the way, in, in how, as how they're referred to in the creation story. The first day, the second day, the third day, right? That's, that's what we call them. And still today in modern Hebrew, that's the names of the days. But when we introduce those psalms at the end of our, of our prayers, we always mention the Sabbath. Okay, this sounds like a tangent. It's not. Stay with me here. We're going we're gonna to learn this and then we're going to go back to our story. So for example, this morning, the psalm of the day for, uh, for Sunday is Psalm 24, incidentally. So before I read Psalm 24 this morning, I said, Today is the first day of the Sabbath. And this is what the Levites said in the temple, and then I recite the psalm. And then tomorrow I'm going to say, Today is the second day of the Sabbath. And this is what the Levites sang in the temple. And then I'll read the psalm of the day for Monday. That's what I'll do tomorrow, etc. So every day of the week, we anticipate the Sabbath. We refer to where we are in anticipation of where we're going, which is the destination of every week is the Sabbath. All days lead to the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not merely a break from work so that we can rest up and continue working next week. The Sabbath is the end point. It's the finish line. Now Friday, listen carefully, Friday, besides being the sixth day of the Sabbath, also has another name. In Jewish lingo, Friday, in its entirety, and when I say in its entirety, I mean from Thursday night. I should probably explain what I just said. Every, you know, in the Bible, in the creation story, at the end of it, every day, it says it was evening, it was morning, and then it says the number of the day, right? The idea that a day begins at midnight is human invention. It makes no sense at all. There are two transition points in every 24-hour period. I'm stating the obvious. There's sundown and there's sunrise. Those are the two transition points. So the only two options for when a day begins is either every day begins at sunrise until the next sunrise, which would mean that at 2 a.m. this morning, before sunrise, it was still yesterday, right? Or it begins at sunset and goes to the next sunset. Those are the only two legitimate options in the natural world and how God created things. Midnight is, nothing happens in the natural world at midnight. It was dark 10 minutes ago, it's dark 10 minutes from now. Right? So which is it? Which is the beginning of every day and end of every day? Is it sunrise or sunset? Well, the Bible tells us in the creation story. Evening comes before morning. <coughs> and therefore, every day begins at sunset. So tonight at sunset will be the beginning of Monday. Make sense? Everyone with me? Good. So Friday, which begins Thursday night when the sun goes down, besides being called the sixth day of the Sabbath, also has another nickname in Jewish tradition. It's called Erev Shabbat, which means Sabbath Eve. And it's even is in our vernacular, the way we talk. People say, what day is it? And it's Friday morning. People say, it's Erev Shabbat. It's Sabbath Eve. Okay, that's what the day is called. 
The special connection to, of Friday to the Sabbath is not merely just a phrase or a nickname or the statement of fact that it happens to be the last day of the week before the Sabbath. Friday's special status is even codified in Jewish law. You know, we're very legal. We're very legalistic. You know those Jews? Very legalistic. For example, just give you a few examples. Prayers that invoke sadness are prohibited on Friday afternoon because the Sabbath is coming and you can't, you can't, you know, bring sadness into your life on Friday afternoon voluntarily. Many, uh, many activities that don't relate directly to the Sabbath are prohibited on Friday afternoon because everything should be focused on preparing for the Sabbath. And culturally speaking, Friday is not just Friday. Friday is a day devoted to preparations for the Sabbath. Any of you who visited Jerusalem uh, on, on a Friday, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's this whole atmosphere that's totally different. Friday in, in Jerusalem, everyone's running around getting ready for the Sabbath. You, you kind of feel it in the air. You go to the market. I see you're nodding. You were there? You know what I'm talking about, right? So according to the teachings of Jewish tradition, there's a... The, the sanctity of the Sabbath, because God declared the seventh day, the Sabbath, holy. God, whatever that, I mean, I don't know exactly what that means. But God gave it a special status. That's right there in the first three verses of Genesis 2, where God declares the Sabbath day sacred. He makes it holy. So it has some special divine blessing upon it, the Sabbath. But according to Jewish tradition... That special status, it's not like a light switch on-off. It, it happens kind of as a process. And Friday, because it's all about preparing for the Sabbath and it's so close to the Sabbath, some of that, that, that holiness, that special status of the Sabbath day is already, you start feeling it already on Friday. So Friday has this special status. And that's why we don't, we don't say sad prayers and we, don't, uh, and we don't engage in activities towards, you know, as it gets deeper into the day, we don't engage in activities that aren't related to the Sabbath because Friday is a special day too because it's preparatory for the Sabbath. It's almost Sabbath. And you can think about this in your own life with anything. If there's a big event coming up in your life, think about whatever the big event might be. Big event coming up in your life you've been anticipating for a long time. The day before that event is also a special day, is it not? Right? The day before that event is already, like the event's already begun. Right? You're already, because you know, it's, it's the day before. Right? And you're already, everything, you know, and you can't think about other things because you're distracted because tomorrow's the big day. And today you're doing your last minute and, and your errand list is all related to that big event that's coming tomorrow. Right? So we have this in our lives. We're familiar with this. Or the day before, or the day before a big festival, a, day, a big holiday. The day before it also has some of that energy. So Friday is a special day. The holiness of the seventh day declared in the Bible is already, you start feeling it on Friday. Okay, what does all this have to do with the question I asked? The question, let's, let's remind ourselves the question we're dealing with. The question we're dealing with is how can this great sage, this great rabbi, this great scholar, he knew how destroyed Jerusalem was. 
He knew the time period he lived in and how dark and endless the exile and persecution of the Jews was. He lived in the time of the Crusades. The Crusades were groups of people who in the name of Christianity were burning synagogues and slaughtering Jews on their way to the Holy Land. This was a dark period for the Jewish people. How did he say, hey, we're already living in the end times? What was he talking about? So now, let's put some pieces together. This is another point where you can come back in. If I've lost you or it seems complicated, don't worry. Clear your head and just listen to what I'm about to say. The pieces are about to start falling into place. Okay? We're good? All right. Just elbow the sleeping person next to you. Perhaps now, perhaps now, based on everything I've said, we can go back to this, crypt, to this cryptic, baffling statement of the rabbi who said that, that we are living in the end times already in the year, somewhere in the 13th century. So right now, today, as I stand here in Lowell, what year is it? No. It, the year is, no, the year is 5,782. That's what year it is. Okay? That means that if you count the years from the beginning of the life of Adam, you know those boring sections in the Bible where it just lists how long people lived and they had kids and, when they were, and how old they were when they had their kid and then how old that kid was when he had his kid? You know those, you know those sections? You kind of skip them. You know what they're there for? Or the book of Chronicles that has all that? It actually serves a very important purpose. Because you can actually use them to mark time and figure out how many years passed. They're very important. They're not fun to learn. There's no commentary on them. But they serve a very important purpose. So if you go ahead, you, I'm not, we're not going to do the work now, but if you go ahead and count the years back to the beginning of the life of Adam to today, the year is 5,782. Good? Everyone with me? That's what year it is. It's 5,782. 5,782 years ago, the life of the first man began. In other words, what does that mean now? Let's think back to the thousand years is a day, right? So we are now 782 years into the sixth millennium since, since creation, since Adam. Got that? Everyone good? 782 years ago, what year was it? Well, 5,000. Okay, smart Alec. Uh, on our calendar that we're familiar with, uh, on, on the Gregorian calendar, what year was it 782 years ago? The year was 1240. Right smack in the middle of the life of Nachmanides, about 20, 27 years before he makes his journey to Jerusalem. He's in his 40s at the time. He's already the leading rabbi of Spain. That's the year 5000. He was very aware of that date. He knew that God's fifth day had just ended. And that the sixth day was just beginning. Everyone think about that for a moment. The sixth day, that's Friday. What did I just say about Friday? It's the preparation for the Sabbath. The holiness of the Sabbath, the excitement of the Sabbath, that big day. You already start feeling it. Now he knew that even if as the sun sets on Thursday, 
The world is getting darker. Erev Shabbat, the sixth day, the day of preparation for the end, for the great Sabbath of history, had already begun. And perhaps this is what he meant when he confidently asserted that we are already living in the era of the end of days. It's Friday. The sixth day is arriving. Now let's take this a step further. As I mentioned before, it's obvious to anyone who reads scripture, Deuteronomy, as I quoted, I opened this lecture with Deuteronomy 30, or we could read Zechariah, Zephaniah, Malachi. We know that we are witnessing the long-awaited return of the people of Israel to Zion after a long and difficult exile. It's very hard to make a case that this isn't the fulfillment of those prophecies. It's too, it, it matches too much. Now, my friends, please listen carefully. If you wanted to tell someone the story of the great and miraculous return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, where do you begin the story? What's the opening chapter of the story of the return of the people of Israel to their land? You, would you begin it with the declaration of the state of Israel in 1948? Is that the beginning of the story? Or maybe you would start it in 1917 when the British... Uh, issued the Balfour Declaration uh, saying that the, that the United Kingdom would assist in creating a Jewish homeland in Palestine, which really was a very important moment in the, in the political history of the modern state of Israel. Or you might, you might begin it in 1892 when the modern Zionist movement, the movement of the Jews in Europe to create a homeland for themselves in the land of Israel began. But if you want to go back that far, you should really start maybe with the mass immigration of Jews that happened in the early 1800s, because there was mass immigrations of Jews in the, in the early 1800s. And the truth is that the Jewish population was increasing through immigration for centuries leading up to the founding of the state of Israel in 1948. So there's many different points in history where you could start the story of the return of the people of Israel to our land. So where do you start it? I don't know where you start it, but I know this. You can't start it earlier than when Rabbi Moses Nachmanides arrived in Jerusalem and found two Jews there. Because when he arrived in Jerusalem and found those two brothers, the only two Jews in Jerusalem, he found a room they cleaned it up, made it into a synagogue, went and got a Torah scroll. He arrived during the only period in Jerusalem's history, from the times of the temple to today, the only period in Jerusalem's history, approximately a five, between a five and ten year period from the Tatar invasion until then. It was the only period in Jerusalem's history in which there was no synagogue or Jewish community. After he arrived, people started to come back. The community began slowly at first to grow. And little by little, then there were more synagogues, more people came. And ever since that time, the population of Jerusalem has been growing. Can I have the next slide, please? This is a, a population of Jerusalem through the ages. It might be too small for you to see from there, so I'll just read it to you. Now, we don't have great records. There was no census done in like the, you know, the Dark Ages. But we do have records from travelers and from some government records from the Ottoman Empire and from some other rulers who passed through and, and kept records. So from the records we have, take a look at this. In the year 70, that's the year of the destruction of the, of the temple in Jerusalem, 
We know that there were approximately 70,000 Jews in Jerusalem. We know that from the writings of Josephus, the great historian of that time. Now we also know that in 1267, when Nachmanides arrived there, we know from his letter, from his testimony, that there were two. In 1471, we have records from a traveler uh, who listed the Jewish population of Jerusalem at 250. In 1553, according to the Ottomans who had just conquered it and they counted everyone, there was 1,958 Jews in Jerusalem. In 1723, it went up to 2,000. 1846, 7,515. I mentioned that there were mass immigrations of Jews to the land of Israel in the 1800s, so it grows rapidly from 1846 to 1896. In that 50-year in that period, the population almost quadruples to 28,000. 1931, it's up to 51,000. In 1967, the Six-Day War, when Jerusalem is reunified, it's up to close to 200,000, and as of the last census in Jerusalem in 2015, there were over half a million Jews in Jerusalem. That's the population of Jerusalem through the ages. So to put it another way, if you were to make a graph, I should have made a graph, right? If you were to make a graph showing the population of Jerusalem from temple times to today, the undisputed low point on the graph, the point at which the decline is over and the arrow is only pointing up, that low point is the month of Elul in, the, in 1267 when Rabbi Moses Nachmanides shows up and wrote that letter to his son. Now, let me ask the question again. If, if, as I said before, we are clearly living in something moving towards the end times. I don't want to say, you know, Messiah is going to come tomorrow. We're, we're, we're in this era. Big things have happened. Prophecies have been fulfilled. Processes are underway. If that's true, the last generation foretold in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, when did this process begin? When did the preparations for the great Sabbath, God's seventh day. When did they begin? Well, they began when they always do. They began at the beginning of the sixth day. And that's when Nachmanides showed up in Jerusalem. Right after the year 1240. Just at the beginning, in the opening years of the sixth millennium, of Friday, of Erev Shabbat, he shows up. And from that point, everything's moving up. Now, do we have any question that he was not crazy or wrong when he said that he was already living in the end times? It was just the beginning of it. Now, I should point out that any of you who have visited the old city of Jerusalem, you have no doubt, believe it or not, walked past this synagogue that he created that he describes in his letter. Well, not exactly the same building, I'll explain in a moment. This congregation, which is called Beit Knesset Ramban, the Nachmanides Synagogue in English, it moved in the 1500s from that original location, that, that house that he cleaned up with the two brothers. In the 1500s, a few hundred years after him, it moved from its original location around the corner a few minutes walk away to its current location that it's been in for around 500 years. It's the same continuous community, praying three times a day. 
It only was closed down between 1948 and 1967 when the Jordanians controlled the old city and all Jews were banished from there. It's right in the heart of the Jewish quarter, next to the large Hurva synagogue, the big fancy synagogue in the middle of the Jewish quarter, right next to it um, in the town square there is where this synagogue is. And considering the historical perspective that I've just shared with you about the importance of this moment when he arrives there in 1267, I consider the Nachmanides synagogue to be one of the least acknowledged holy sites in Israel. Because anyone who understands that we live in the times of the beginnings of redemption, for anyone who understands that, this synagogue is a point of origin. It's the beginning of that, moder of that process. We're not done. We're going to drill a little deeper now into this 6,000 year thing. This teaching that the 6,000 years of history are six godly days was elaborated by a later great Jewish scholar. In the 15th century, so we're now moving ahead a few hundred years from Rabbi Moses Nachmanides to another rabbi. He's a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Isaac Luria. Very famous rabbi. You could look him up. Big Wikipedia page. Rabbi Isaac Luria was a very important rabbi in Jewish history. He's a bit of a mystic, more than a bit. But in his writings, he revealed more details about the great calculations of the end times. And he expanded on this ancient tradition of 6,000 years being six godly days based on that verse in Psalms. He explained that just as each day of our lives is divided into night followed by day, right, as the creation story repeats over and over again, so too the first 500 years of each millennium of each godly day is a time of darkness when the light of the day, the revealed progress that that day brings, is not yet visible. It's concealed. Right? Every one of our days begins with 12 hours, well, half-half, but obviously summer and winter, the days change. But every day begins with a period of darkness and then a period of light. It was evening, it was morning, that's what the Bible says. So says Rabbi Luria, every one of these thousand years in God's big story of the 6,000 years, his week leading up to the great Sabbath, every one of these thousand years first has 500 years of darkness. So there's progress in God's great story, but the progress isn't so visible. Which is why when I said that this rabbi in the 13th century said that he was already living in the end times, people laughed. Because it was not visible. It was dark. So, if 1240 was the year 5000, and therefore that was the beginning of the sixth day, but that's the beginning of the night part of the sixth day, right? We're heading into the night. When is sunrise? 500 years later. 1740. Who said 1740. Right, 1740. Good, you're paying attention. Uh, somebody. Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. So the year 1740 is, is sunrise, right? 
And remember, the rabbi speaking now is Rabbi Isaac Luria. He lives in like the, in the 15th century. So 1740 is still a while off when he's speaking. He's in, the, he's in between somewhere. So that's the halfway point of the 6th millennium. So Rabbi Luria explains, he says, it's not just a thousand years is a day for God, but it's divided into 500 and 500. And therefore, the, with the sunrise where things start to be revealed is 1740. The year 5500. The halfway point of the sixth day. And that's when the work of the sixth day, the preparation for the Sabbath, must really begin in earnest. See, the numbers start to grow rapidly after that, after that point. Now, it was awareness of this teaching. The, the teaching that I've shared with you is not some hidden secret that Rabbi Willicke knows. The topic today that was on the sign outside the church is a Jewish view of the end times. Jews knew this. They read Nachmanides' book. They read Rabbi Luria's book. And there were great rabbis in the 1700s who started telling their students, it's time to go home. It's time to start heading back to the land. Those mass immigrations in the late 1700s, early 1800s, into the middle of the 1800s were the result of this teaching. They told their students, we have the books. The sun is risen. It's time to go home. Rabbi Luria, though, in the 1400s, went further. Not only is a day divided into equal parts, night and day, it's also divided into 24 hours. Jewish law has always worked with a 24-hour day. Many customs and practices in Jewish life Include the times for daily, including the times for daily prayer. They're dictated by precise calculations based on the hour of the day. So Rabbi Luria explained that the same is true for God's historical thousand-year days. Each thousand years, says Rabbi Luria, is divided, like any day, into 24 equal parts. Now, if you divide a thousand years into 24, it would turn out that each hour of our thousand-year day would be 41 years and eight months. You with me? 41 years and eight months, that's an hour. No, she's nodding her. She's like, this is getting crazy. Okay, you ain't seen nothing yet. You wait till we get to the punchline. 41 years and eight months, that's an hour. Everyone with me? That's an hour? 41 years and eight months of God's day. So Rabbi Luria, writing over 500 years ago, what I'm about to share with you was written over 500 years ago. He continues with a very specific but very cryptic statement. Now, this shouldn't be surprising. I mentioned that he was, that he was a, a mystical rabbi. Um, I'm not into mysticism. but And mysticism has gotten a really bad name by a lot of weird nonsense that's out there. When I use the word mysticism, it's not in like what you see out there, Kabbalah and all that stuff. That's Seriously. There's a whole other lecture, but like there's, there's actually a more... The real, I don't even like the word mysticism. I don't know what the right word for it is. The right word is really a Hebrew word, sod, which means secrets, which is a way of reading the Bible, which is what we're really doing here. When I talk about the six days of creation or six godly days, it's reading a subtext of the Bible. God can say multiple things at the same time. He can give us multiple layers of messages at the same time. And it's really a way of, of explaining the Bible. It's not like hocus pocus. So Rabbi Luria, who was really a leader of this hidden way of reading the Bible, let's say, says something very cryptic. 
a lot of things he says were very cryptic. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to read you his quote. It will make no sense to you. And then I will share some other information with you. And then we're going to read the, the same quote again. And it'll make sense to you. Okay? You with me? Here's what we're about to do. So here's what he wrote. Here's the quote from him. It is understood by us regarding Sabbath Eve, which is Friday, right? It is understood by us regarding Friday that from the fifth hour of the day of, on, the, on the eve of the Holy Sabbath, from the fifth hour of the day on the eve of the Holy Sabbath, the worlds begin to be elevated higher and higher. Holiness will increase. This is the secret of the extra letter hey, that's a Hebrew letter. In the scriptural verse, it was evening, it was morning, the sixth day. This refers to the fifth hour. Right? Made no sense to you? Good. If anyone says it made sense to them, you're lying. Before we go any further, before we go any further, allow me to explain. Okay? I'm going to walk you through it. In the creation story, as we know well, each of the six days ends with the statement, it was evening, it was morning, and then whatever day, second day, third day. Can I have a, I have a slide here, right? Can you put the next slide up? Yeah, there you go. It was evening, so there, a couple examples. Um, it was evening, it was morning, the fifth day. It was evening, it was morning, the sixth day. Right, you see that? That's what you have at the end of each day of creation. But, the sixth day, Friday has a difference that is completely undetectable in any English translation. And it's not because the translators did a sloppy job. It's simply undetectable. And I'll share it with you now. When the phrase second day or third day, take a look at this slide if you can see it. Hope you can see it. It says, it was evening, it was morning, the fifth day. Right? What it actually says is, it was evening, it was morning, fifth day. The word the does not appear in any of the days until the sixth day. Meaning, again, if you were doing a technical syntactical translation of the Bible, it would sound very awkward and I, don't, I totally understand why the Bible translators didn't do that. But it literally says, it was evening, it was morning, second day. It was evening, it was morning, third day. It was evening, it was morning, fourth day. It was evening, it was morning, fifth day. It was evening, it was morning, the sixth day. Suddenly the word the appears. Now the in Hebrew is not a word. It's a prefix. In Hebrew, if you want to say, like, uh, this, is a, uh, this is water. Water in Hebrew is maim. If I want to say the water, it's just hamaim. You add a ha, which is just one letter. It's a prefix. Right? Got that? Book is sefer. The book is ha-sefer. That's Hebrew. So, the word for fifth, for example, is chamishi. So, yom means day, chamishi means fifth. So, it was evening, it was morning, yom chamishi, fifth day. When it comes to Friday, shishi means sixth. It says, it was evening, it was morning, yom ha-shishi, the sixth day. Why? It doesn't seem relevant at all. It doesn't seem important at all. 
the Bible inexplicably adds the prefix he, which means the, before the number of the day, only on the sixth day. Now, grammatically, this serves no purpose in this context. It has nothing to do with the story of creation. It doesn't change the story in any way. It adds nothing to the narrative. But if there's an extra letter, this is obviously an anomaly. You have six days of creation. None of them have that letter except the sixth day. We have to ask what's going on. Now, according to this tradition of Sod, Rabbi Luria, this layered reading of the Bible where you're, you're paying attention to these. So again, at the simple meaning of the Bible, this means nothing. It's six days of creation. We can read the story. We know what it is. But when you notice something like this, so that's when you go to these deeper levels of what exactly is being said here. What's being added in here? What, what is this teaching us? What is this extra letter? So Rabbi Luria um, was referring to this letter in that statement where he said there's an extra letter hey. Remember that line? So let me explain this. Every... Hold on a second. Let me just make sure I have my notes straight here. Okay. So it, it was evening, it was morning, the sixth day, Yom HaShishi. This is the final two words of the creation story. Okay? So the word HaShishi, the sixth, is the final word of the six days of creation. Immediately after that word is Genesis 2, is the Sabbath. Okay? It's the final word of the six days of creation. The words right after, this are, right after this are, and the heavens and the earth were completed, and it goes on with the Sabbath, the three verses of the Sabbath. In other words, listen carefully, nothing separates the word the sixth, ha, she, she, from the day of rest, from the Sabbath. So Rabbi Luria teaches us, that this letter hey, this extra the, the, this extra letter, is teaching us something special about the sixth day. And that what immediately follows it, the Sabbath. Let me say this again. The letter hey, the sixth day, leads us into the Sabbath. It's the final word. So some, something about the transition from the six days into the Sabbath is being told to us by this extra letter. When does this holiness of the Sabbath day get to really be felt on Friday? So every Hebrew letter, according to this sod way of reading the Bible, when we're looking for clues to mysteries like this, with the, I'll teach you something interesting about Hebrew. Every Hebrew letter has a numerical value. Okay? Every Hebrew letter is also a number. The numerical value of the letter He is five. It's the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And it has the numerical value of five. Everyone with me? Yeah? Okay. Not asleep? Not too hungry? 
So now let's go back. So, so we got this all straight. We got this extra letter. It's the final letter of the creation story. It means the sixth. That letter hey is the word the. It's an extra word. It's an extra letter. It doesn't appear in the other ones. And it's the numerical value of five. I'm now going to reread Rabbi Luria's statement. Okay, you ready for it? Here it comes. I'm just going to read the exact quote again. It is understood by us regarding the Sabbath Eve, regarding Friday, that from the fifth hour of the day, on the eve of the Holy Sabbath, the worlds begin to be elevated higher and higher. Holiness will increase in them. This is the secret of the extra letter hey in the scriptural verse. It was evening, it was morning, the sixth day. This refers to the fifth hour. Does it make more sense now? Good. In other words, at the five-hour mark of the daytime, because he said on the fifth hour of the day of the Sabbath Eve, didn't say the fifth hour of the Sabbath Eve, the fifth hour of the day of the Sabbath Eve, the five-hour mark of the day, a fundamental change is going to take place. That's what he's saying. A major step in the transition from the six days, the history of the world, from the time of Adam to the end times, the six thousand, God's six days, a major transition is going to happen in the fifth hour, at the five hour mark of the sixth, of the daytime of the sixth day. So let's do the calculation. What's the fifth hour of the sixth day? Well, I mentioned earlier that if you divide a thousand years by 24, each hour is 41 years and eight months. So let's do the math. The first 500 years of the sixth millennium, that's easy. That's the nighttime. And that brings us to the year 1740, the year 5500. So that's sunrise. Now we have to count five hours from there. So 41 years and eight months multiplied by five. Let's keep it simple. 41 years multiplied by five is 205. 41 times 5 is 205. 8 months multiplied by 5 is 40 months. 40 months is 3 years and 4 months. This brings the total to 208 years and 4 months. So now let's add 208 years and 4 months to the year 1740. And we're in the spring of 1948. Ladies and gentlemen, did something historically significant happen in the story of the redemption of the people of Israel and the fulfillment of biblical prophecy in the spring of 1948? This is a calculation based on ancient teachings written about centuries and centuries ago. How fortunate we are. How fortunate we are that we get to live in a time when we see these things being fulfilled. But there's only one problem. How much more time do I have, Pastor? <laughs> is, is 10 minutes okay? 10 minutes? 10, 15 minutes? Is that good? Yeah, we're, okay. Everyone's good? You, want to, you need a drink of water? Bathroom break? Smoke break? <laughs> I appreciate the laughter. All right, hopefully everyone's, everyone's awake. All right? We're not done. There's one big problem, though, with talking about how we're living in the end times and everybody, right? We're hurtling towards the big victory, right? But it's a big problem. 
Because if we're truly living in the end of days, if we're moving towards the time when knowledge of God will fill the earth like water covers the sea, hallelujah, right? A time when God will be king over all the earth, as Zechariah says, then why do we see a decline in awareness of God in so many contexts, in so many ways? If we're moving toward greater revelation of God in the world, why does the world in so many ways seem to be moving away from him? But this problem was also foretold by these same scholars of Sod. Listen carefully. Could I have the next slide? The uh, verse from Psalm 104. Psalm 104 verse 29 states, When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. Now this Psalm 104 is all about nature and different animals and different things in, in the natural world. It's a beautiful psalm. Uh, it has a nickname in Jewish tradition. It's called, the song, it's called the Song of Nature. Nature's Song. Um, and it talks about animals. And it mentions that when God, when you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. Kind of an obvious statement. The Hebrew word that's translated here as you take away, when you take away their breath, is tosef. You got that word? Tosef. That's the Hebrew word. The linguistic commentaries on the Bible, those commentaries that really get into word meanings, have a very difficult time with this word. Because in the context, it obviously means take away. Like, what else is God doing to the breath of something that is about to die? Look at the verse again. You take away their breath, they die. What else, right? So it makes sense to translate it as take away or understand it that way. The problem, though, is that the word tosef appears in other places in the Bible and it does not mean to take away. In fact, you know, so what the, what the commentaries try to do is they try to connect the word tosef to a related word asaf, which means to collect or to gather in. And they say he's gathering in their breath, which is like taking it away. Because they have to square this, this word that doesn't mean to take away with the fact that it's describing an animal dying, right? So they relate it to this word asaf, different word really. And some commentaries just say that it's a very unusual use of the verb root. Now again, according to simple context, this is a correct translation. Take away their breath, they die. But I'm going to show you the word tosef in the other three places in the Bible where it appears. Okay? Can we go to the next slide? Here we go. Deuteronomy 3, verse 26. Do not speak to me anymore. Do not additionally speak to me about this thing. This is, uh, this is Moses asking God to let him go into the land of Israel. And God says, enough with this already. Stop talking to me about this. Do not talk to me anymore. Al tosef do not additionally speak to me about this. Don't do it again. Okay, so we see the next slide. Exodus 10, verse 28. This is Pharaoh telling Moses and Aaron to go away and don't come back. I don't want to see you again. In the middle of their back and forth with the plagues. Al tosef panai. Do not continue to see my face. Don't see my face anymore. For the day you see my face, you shall die. Next verse. Next slide, please. 
And this is in also Deuteronomy verse 13. This is the commandment not to add to the Bible, not to claim that there are more laws in the Bible than there actually are. Okay? So do not add to it and do not to subtract from it. The word do not add, the word for add is tosef. Hmm. So as you can see from these verses, the word tosef means to do something more, to increase, to add. Huh. That's kind of the opposite of taking away. So an actual literal translation of the verse in Psalms that I started this little piece with about the animals dying would be when you increase their breath, they die and return to the dust. That makes no sense. Right? When you add to their, to their breath. So in the plain context of the psalm, I believe that this is actually a better translation. Because if you've seen animals die, there is a phenomenon known as death throes, which is defined in the dictionary as sudden, powerful, violent movements that are made right before dying. The surge of energy that that living things get right before they die. And I believe that this is actually what the verse is describing. And that it should be translated as when, you, when there's a sudden surge in their breath, they're actually about to die. Now, according to this layered way of reading the Bible, what is this verse about? Is it really just about animals dying? What it's really about is the animalistic side of humanity. We have an animal side that we're constantly battling with. And we're being told that when you, God, when you increase their breath, it actually means that they're about to die. In other words, just before the animalistic side of humanity is about to die, it looks like, briefly, that they're stronger than ever. The animalistic forces will surge with energy right before they are banished from the earth. Don't be fooled. It looks like an increase in strength and power, but it's actually the final stages of a violent death. That's what I believe is happening with evil in the world right now. It is surging. It's surging big time. But it's surging at the same time as all these other prophecies are being fulfilled. What's God up to? I believe and I hope and pray that it's really a fulfillment of this verse. It's the animal side of humanity having that last surge of energy. So what does this all mean for us? We're, about to, we're almost done, folks. Don't worry. What does all this mean for us? So I began the talk by quoting Deuteronomy 30. I spoke of prophecies that are being fulfilled in our time. I want to share another one. Psalm 126 speaks about the return of the people of Israel to the land of Israel. In the future tense, it says, oh, when, when, the, when God brings us all back, we're like dreamers. Then it will be said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Let's think about that. Very nice prophecy. That when God gathers in the people of Israel to the land, among the nations there will be multitudes of people who will praise God for doing great things for the Jews. Now, my great-grandparents 
lived in uh, Leipzig in Germany. Most of their family was wiped out by the Nazis. Their business was taken away by the Nazis. This psalm, Psalm 126, we sing it on the Sabbath before we do our grace after meals. We say prayer after we eat. And, we, and Psalm 126 is added in on, 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 on Sabbaths and festivals. And I you think about, like, what did my great-grandfather think when he read those verses? Wait a second. God is going to redeem us and multitudes among the nations of the world are going to praise God for being so good to the Jews. When has that ever happened? That's kind of not our relationship with the nations of the world for most of our history. But it is now. We stand at a time today, among all the other reversals in history and miracles that we're living, is the fact that there are millions and millions and growing numbers every day of God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians who praise God for being so good to the people of Israel. And I want you to understand how as much as that might make sense to you, and it might be who you are, historically, it's a complete reversal. It's miraculous. It's as miraculous as the state of Israel itself. You are a fulfillment of that prophecy when you support Israel and praise God for what he's done for the Jewish people. Psalm 117, similarly, which is one of the psalms I deal with in my book, shameless plug, buy my book. Um, if you enjoy these teachings, you'll enjoy my book. Um, psalm 117 says, Praise God, all nations, exalt him, all peoples, for his kindness has been abundant upon us. Yeah, that's right. All the nations of the world, I mean, watch the news about how people talk about Israel, right? That, that's the way it works, right? All the nations of the world praise God for being so good to the Jewish people. But Christians are leading the way on that. You know, folks, we live in a very important time. For most of the history that I've described today, things were kind of dormant. There wasn't a lot of progress on these issues. But the last couple hundred, the last 200 years, especially the last 100 years, and especially the last couple decades, have seen rapid progress in these things. You know, when God led the people of Israel, when Moses led the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, and they were crossing the Red Sea, just picture it. The, the Bible says that the water was like walls on their right and left. And they're walking across the sea, and the Egyptian army is being drowned behind them as the sea closes behind them. Could you imagine being one of those people in the crowd walking across the Red Sea? And you, and you look at the person next to you and you say, hey man, we're in the Bible. <laughs> you see, people don't appreciate when they're in the Bible. When Psalm 126 says, as this distant future prophecy at some point in the, in the, in the fantasy of, of some distant future that there's going to come a time where there will be multitudes among the nations who will be with us and will praise God for what he's done for Israel. Hallelujah. Who was he talking about? Who was he talking about? 
What Jews was he talking about who returned to the land? I was born in the U.S., raised in Canada. I said my, my grandparents, one side came from Germany, the other side came from, from, uh, from Russia. And we're in the land of Israel today. We're in gathered exiles. Folks, we're in the Bible. Those of you who've been to Israel, you... When Zechariah in chapter 8 said that many people from great nations will turn to one another and say, I am going to Jerusalem to seek the Lord. And the other one says, I will go too. Why did you go to Israel? You went to connect with God. You were who Zechariah was talking about. You know, the past tense stories in the Bible have names. Moses, Abraham, because they happened already. The future tense stories in the Bible don't have names, they just say people. Nations. Because they haven't happened yet. So when you praise the God of Israel for what he's done for the people of Israel, when you support Israel, when you travel to Israel, you are becoming, you are choosing to be the person that the Bible is talking about. We live in a big time. We live in a time that our ancestors looked, read in the Bible, these distant future prophecies, and we're, and we, we, and we're players on the field. We're in there. And we can choose to be the person in the Bible or to be on the sidelines. And there's a lot going on in the world right now. There's a lot going on in the world. Now, I don't want to get political in the hard sense of the term, but I do want to say this. There's a lot of struggles going on between a biblical worldview and whatever opposes a biblical worldview. And the, and the battle is turning hot. And I meet a lot of Christians and Jews who say, oh, I don't want to get involved in politics. Oh, you know, I have my faith, my prayer life. I don't want to get involved in politics. Folks, there are a lot of people who are opposed to every value that you and I hold dear who are more than happy to get involved in politics. And if you open up your Bible and you read you'll see that Abraham was involved in politics and Joseph was involved in politics and King David was involved in politics and Jeremiah was involved in politics, etc., etc., etc. Because politics is about the direction of the world. And there comes a time when we need to stand up and be counted. You can interpret this however you want. I don't want to get into details. Didn't just come here to talk about Israel. Because we're fighting, Israel's at the focal point of a much larger battle. We're on the front lines. We're fighting, I mean, the city of Jerusalem is the only city in the world where there's a political battle over what its history is. Where the UN can pass a resolution denying that there was a temple. Like, what is going on? Folks, this is a big time. And I don't know what, what comes next. I know this. If you have faith in God, you know that the end of the story is good. We know that. But how painful and how bloody it is on the way to that beautiful end, that's up to us. And I think we are being called right now into relationship with each other, people who share our values, and we're being called, frankly, by our enemies who are letting us know that it's time for us to act. So, 
you know, maybe you, you can attack the pastor afterwards for the rabbi getting too political. You know, I get to get in my car and drive out of here. Um, but my message is to embrace the fact that we're living in a very special time. And we're living in biblical times. Again, the Bible isn't just about the past. I open up my Bible, I see a lot of stuff about the future too. We are... Biblical times doesn't mean archaeology. We are living in a biblical time. And it is our choice whether or not we want to be on the sidelines or we want to be the people the Bible was talking about.